So I think what the listeners want to learn is that there might be nothing wrong with them. There might be nothing wrong with them and nothing wrong with them either. Not only them, but all the people that they think there's something wrong with. Like it's possible that there's nothing wrong with you and that what you have going on right here is actually the way the world should unfold. In this conversation, you're going to find two guys who had a beautiful um, exploration together who really shared looking in the depths of you know, our own knowledge base, which is at least, I don't know, six years, so years um, combined, uh, looking at these issues directly and really focusing on them as we really explore what works, what is honestly true, what doesn't work, what's not worth exploring, and how to make a difference in a world that really, really matters. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a special guest, Dr. Fred Moss, who is a recovering retired psychiatrist with over 40 years of experience in mental health across various roles. Known as the Undoctor, Dr. Fred is a transformational, restorative coach on a mission to empower their clients by undiagnosing, unmedicating, and undoctrinating their lives allowing them to reclaim their true selves. Throughout Dr. Fred's life, he has embarked on awe-inspiring storylines, residing in various locations around the country and the world as a traveling doctor, and these experiences have afforded him a unique understanding of how mental health is defined and treated across different cultures. By unraveling the complexities of mental health, Dr. Fred seeks to challenge conventional definitions and treatment methods guiding individuals toward their authentic, true voice. So, Dr. Fred, um, welcome to the show. Oh, I can't can't hear you now. Oh, oh, I said thank you so much for having me. It's really, really great to be here. It's a wonderful opportunity to be on your show and to be with your listeners, and I greatly appreciate it. The pleasure is mine. Of course, of course. So, I wanted to start off just by asking you why the name the Undoctor. Tell me mm -hmm. where, where did that originate from, and and what's what's sort of the significance behind that? Right. So that's a moniker I received a few years ago, um, and when I really started talking a little bit about what I do for my clients, and I'd like to talk a little bit about how I got to be who that is first. So. Basically, I came into the world really um, enchanted immediately and counted on to bring communication and joy into, a, at that point, a family that was in a fair amount of disarray and chaos. I had two brothers older than me, 10 and 14 years old, and uh, from what I understand, there was a fair amount of fighting and uh, disarray in the family, and I was called in to be the bundle of joy that brought communication and, and a new level of love and connection into my family, which apparently I did fairly well for a couple years. I'm not sure that my brothers would presently call me a bundle of joy, however, but that's a whole different question. Then I became entirely enchanted with the idea of communication. I remember specifically being in my playpen and holding on to the edges and watching my parents and brothers speak and knowing that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. And for sure, I learned how to do that because, you know, precocious as I was given two older brothers, I learned how to read, I learned how to write, I learned how to do math early on. I also learned how to speak, and I learned how to speak really openly and honestly. And there's no elementary school teacher who ever had Fred as a student who forgot having me, that's for sure. I was very talkative and very smart. I was like that guy you might know in previous you know, classes that you've been in elementary school, sort of like the smartest guy in the class and the biggest mouth in the class at the same time. And you know, one of the things that I really, really learned is that I wanted to learn how to communicate. And elementary school wasn't going to be the place where that happened. So I figured maybe junior high where the big kids went. But when I got there, I was disillusioned again. And then again in high school. And then realized that, that what was going to happen in college, it must. I mean, that's where people must learn how to communicate. So uh, because of that, and because it was the age of some protests and some open speaking arrangements, um, I really thought that was going to happen in the college that was 40 miles away from my home called the University of Michigan, and that's where I went for the next several years. I lasted about two years there um, and then dropped out because that wasn't a place to learn how to communicate either. I loved Ann Arbor, but I didn't love school at all. And so I left and got on a bus and went to Berkeley because I knew that that would be a place that I learned how to communicate. And uh, sure enough, I had a great summer really finding myself in Berkeley but it wasn't sustainable and I was convinced to go back to school. 
I went back to school and, you know, there was this new industry that I heard about that was going to take the world by storm. It was called computers. And there was only one computer in all of Michigan, and that was at the University of Michigan. So I went all the way back home to do that. But that was batch jobs and punch cards, and no way was I going to actually do that for my life either. So I dropped out of school again and promised that I would never, ever, ever go back to school for any reason. When I told my mom that, she got me an application to start working at a civil service job. I got that job as a child care worker, working with um, adolescent boys in a state mental health facility. And there I learned how to communicate. Finally, I was learning how to communicate and getting paid for it. Like I knew that if I treated these children who were only seven years younger than me with the kind of respect that they deserved as simply being human beings in their present life, that I could communicate with them. And I really learned what I already knew, which is that healing happens inside of the human connection. So I knew that already going into that job, but it really got illustrated and demonstrated inside of that job. And I really loved that job. The things I hated about that job, and I mean hated, was the way psychiatry was being utilized. So I hated the psychiatrist on that job. I didn't hate them as people. I hated what their role was. We would call them if if the children had some sort of tussle or if they were up too late, and they would come down and speak to the child for like three seconds and then speak to us for like seven seconds then write something in the chart and we'd have to go retrieve the child and hold him down in the quiet room, pull down his hip of his, you know, of his sweatpants and then jam him full of some injectable, you know, antipsychotic, anti-anxiety cocktail meant to um, send him into a, a virtual stupor. And if he went into a stupor for the next 24 hours, then we called that a success story. I saw how barbaric that was and that wasn't what I wanted to be for my friendly kids, the kids I was working with. Um, So I decided to go back into school one more time to become a psychiatrist and bring communication to the world as a way of treating mental illness. In the meantime, while I was, and I got accepted to Northwestern, I love Chicago, I I do adore Chicago. I just posted that earlier today and realized that that still sits open for me. Um, I realized, you know, that during that time when I was training, a big paradigm shift took place. The advent of Prozac took place in 1987 while I was in uh, medical school. That changed the whole paradigm of psychiatry. As you know, that was when psychiatry became a biological field, a field based on the illusion of chemical imbalance. The idea that chemical imbalances were causing these psychiatric illnesses called depression and anxiety didn't really hit with me, but there I was with plenty of sunken costs in time, energy, money, you know, sweat equity, all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, I was being groomed to be nothing less than a psychopharmacologist, a psychopharmacologist with diagnostician capacity. And that's what I was for the next several years, even though I went into the field so I would never have to do either of those things. So it was a fair amount of duplicity in my life, and I was no longer speaking my true voice because who I was being in the world was inconsistent with who I knew myself to be. In 2006, about 15 years later, I did something that was thought to be pretty radical, which is I stopped some of the medicines on some of my clients. And by stopping the medicine, actually stopping the medicine on the lower risk clients, I really saw that they got better, way better, reliably better, and on a whole, you know, like expectable. And in many cases, their actual original diagnosis disappeared and dissolved entirely. I began to learn then that the medicines and therefore the treatments associated with the medicines often perpetuated, advanced, increased, or even in some cases caused the symptoms they're marketed to treat. And I learned this at a global level. I learned this like anecdotally and wanted to go to the mountaintops and scream it out using my oh so wonderful speaking skills. But it wasn't such a great idea to do that. I was, you know, there was a there's a fair amount of pushback from some um, entities inside of the psychiatric field that wouldn't readily accept that. So I didn't do it exactly, but I stayed really perplexed. And over the next several years, I closed my practice and that's when I got my world uh, training. You know, that's when I started traveling around the world and doing telepsychiatry, learning that psychiatry was a really vague and nebulous field. And I already knew that, but The idea that psychiatric diagnoses were not really clearly associated with anything like neurotransmitters or anything like that, even though that's what the theory was. It didn't jive at all. And in fact, 
different conditions look differently in different parts of the world. You know, unlike a broken arm, that's a broken arm in Singapore, and it's a broken arm in Auckland, and it's a broken arm in Reykjavik and Little Rock, this is not true with psychiatric illness. If you show up in a certain way, in some countries you may be revered, in other countries you may be promoted, in other countries you may be institutionalized, in other countries you may be set alone. There's, you know, different ways of looking at our psychiatric capacities. And because psychiatry didn't have a firm definition, I concluded that it's a narrative that whose transformation is now, you know, ready to happen, that it's a transformable narrative. And it is, and without question. So in 2016, I began to really take steps in that direction. It took me a long time because even in those years, I was called on to be a diagnostician and a medicine provider. But in 2016, I created Welcome to Humanity. And what Welcome to Humanity is, is now pretty self-explanatory. All of life is exquisite, including the miserable aspects, including the painful aspects, including the you know uncomfortable aspects. And if we can get a handle on that, if we can actually get that for ourselves, that even the very brutal aspects of life fit in with the wonderful aspects of life, and they're all part of the, the wonderful, you know, the crazy experience of life, then we can start life from a space without believing that there's anything wrong with us. And if we do that, we don't need any medication. There's only reason to need medication is by thinking that there's something wrong with us, going and getting confirmed by a doctor that there's something wrong with us, and then being given something to so-called fix us, which doesn't really work anyways. So that's, you know, going back to the, who I've been now, the next several years were spent helping people find their, gen, refine, rediscover their genuine true self. Through the books that I've written, the Creative Eight and the True Voice book, as well as the True Voice course, I help people like dig down and unravel and unrust and undust and, you know, like, like unveil uh, who they've been their whole life anyways, and then start speaking from that true self. When you do that, you resonate harmonically with other people, creating a level of authenticity that is the actual grounds for this healing. So I've become the True Voice doctor as well treating people really how to podcast. I use podcasting as my template because I don't know that there's a better platform anywhere to share our honest and good, honest and real true selves and what you and I are doing today. So, um, you know, the undoctor is a moniker I received from a friend about five years ago who saw that what I really do is I undiagnose, unmedicate, and then undoctrinate people allow people to actually take different avenues than coming down the mainstream of the psychiatric industrial complex when they feel uncomfortable. Because if you go to the barbershop enough times, which clearly I have, then you're going to get a haircut. And in this case, if you go to the doctor enough times, you definitely are going to get a diagnosis and you're going to get a treatment. In fact, you're not even, you'll never get out of a psychiatrist's office without getting a diagnosis because they have to provide one in order for you, them to get paid by any third parties so that they will always give you a diagnosis. And that'll stay in your record forever, no matter how benign you might think it is. The idea here is that if you really get that you're not diagnosable, that there's nothing wrong with you in the first place, that being uncomfortable in an uncomfortable world is normal, that being afraid in a terrifying world is normal, that being depressed in a world where things are going on that are really counter to what you wished for is normal, that being like, you know, that being scattered in a world that is asking too much of us every single day to stay steady is normal, that when you start getting that it's all normal to be going through the experiences that we're going through, then you can get that psychiatry itself is built on the notion that there's such things as firm diagnoses when there is not, and therefore, there, this is the time for a transformation of the narrative. Once we get that, well, then the undoctor plays a role. By unmedicating, we, by undiagnosing, we take away the notion there's anything wrong with you. Then if you know that there's nothing wrong with you, then you don't need medicine. And if you don't need medicine, then you don't need, need doctors for any of your mental health, including me and you, by the way. The idea is that you don't need any of us. We don't have anything new. If you just know that it's all going as well as it can, and there's nothing wrong with you per se, you know, there is no chemical imbalance. There is no, um, you know, biological component to whether or not you feel sad or angry or anxious or depressed. Not at all. This is all just the way life is unfolding. And can we give credit and be, you know, compassionate and accepting and forgiving of our experiences as being real? 
What does create the symptoms of, of mental illness, by the way, are the medications and the treatment. Once you start taking those medicines, they are geared to alter the way we think and what we say and do. That's what they do. I mean, they're psychotropics after all. There's no question they do that. So they create an imbalance. And in a lot of ways, they become the cart in front of the horse. They create the imbalance that they're marketed to treat in that situation. And we really walk into a world where the treatments themselves are often causing, increasing, advancing, or at least perpetuating the circumstances they're marketed to treat. And the undoctor fits that role because what I really want to do is undoctrinate people and really get them to their true voice so they can resonate harmonically with others. Because when you do that, you communicate effectively and authentically, and it is from there that all healing emanates from. There you go. Okay. So, you know, a lot of different routes I could take it off that, but, you know, something I wanted to address that I know, you know, earlier this year, I know a lot of news outlets, a lot of major news outlets reported on, um, I think, a research paper, a meta-analysis mm -hmm. that kind of disproved the the chemical theory of for depression for serotonin. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we've known for a while that, you know, these antidepressants, the SSRIs, the most commonly <laughs> prescribed drugs to treat depression, we know that they have a slew of side effects that they aren't effective in a lot of people that take them. And I just thought it was, it's pretty fascinating that now, you know, it's kind of being more accepted that actually there's way more to depression than a single neurochemical, that there's inflammation, that there's social influences, there's toxicity. so many toxicity, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I can definitely appreciate, you know, your approach, just working in the mental health field myself and seeing how, you know, a lot of, a lot of patients seem to definitely be quite over-medicated and could be worsening or maybe even causing, as you're saying, causing their issues to begin with. So I really appreciate your, your voice and, you know, just kind of speaking, speaking your truth in that regard and speaking on a lot of, I know, patients' truth. Yeah, that's right. In that's what I do now. That's the, that's the movement that we're creating and we are creating a movement. There's a crowdfund, crowdfunded a, a movement that's launching this week and a whole institute so I can help people not only get aligned with the idea that coming down the mainstream of the psychiatric industrial complex may not be the best idea, but also helping clinicians, maybe even like yourself or your colleagues, learn how to help people to uh, walk out of that system or to not enter it if they're considering it, because there are so many alternatives out there that, you know, our great network has allowed us to actually see that are more effective, more efficient, and simply cause healing and curing of conditions that we otherwise think are chronic and, you know, like unmovable and deteriorating over time. I would say that, you know, many conditions are chronic and, un and deteriorating because this is, the, this is what we use to treat them. And there is no hope of them getting better since we use the conventional treatment uh, modalities. So, of course, they're chronic and deteriorating because what you're doing isn't affecting them in any other direction. And what's really possible is to take directions that not, not only assume chronicity or deterioration, but quite the opposite can assist people in getting to he full healing and full curing of their so-called imbalances. I would love to hear more about, you know, you mentioned for you in your, your personal story, the, the power of learning to communicate. And you talked about the connection aspect of, of people being able to heal kind of through, through this human connection. So tell me a bit more about uh, that idea and just what, what you've noticed working with patients in that regard. Right. So, you know, first of all, I want to make clear a little disclaimer that it's very important for me to pass along to all my podcast guesting and um, listenerships, which is if you as a listener ha have found your diagnosis, you're happy with it, you're happy with your diagnostician, you're happy with your medications or whoever you're helping, you know, your caregiver uh, aspect, then you should continue doing that. If in this lifetime you found something that works, you should continue doing it. I really mean that. I don't have anything against people who have found something that works and they want to continue doing it. So I'm not asking anybody who's happy and satisfied with how things are going to un, like unfurl themselves or disconnect themselves from something that's working. I'm not speaking to them today. Who I really am speaking to is tens or even hundreds of millions of people who don't fall in that category 
who feel like the treatment is not working for them, that maybe they've been misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed, overmedicated, undermedicated, you know, not listened to, not heard, not respected, not cared for, those people. And there are literally tens, if not hundreds of millions of people who fall into that category. And this conversation is for them. So when we start looking at what does work, we see that we are really generally very addicted to connecting with other folks. This has been since the very beginning. We are social animals. We are super interested in connecting. That's what you and I are doing. Why are we taking our afternoon today to have a conversation? Because we appreciate the possibility of connecting. And as you and I connect, even on this platform, there's a new level of healing that takes place with us. We start realizing that we are not alone, that we don't have to live inside of our head. We don't have to live inside of our own ideas, our own feelings, our own emotions, our own physical sensation. We don't have to live at that and call that reality. When we share with another person, healing actually is what occurs, healing at a fundamental level. I know some doctors, um, pediatricians specifically, who say that they can cure knee pain and earaches by having a great conversation with the parents and the child. Just having a great combination can actually switch so many conditions that are actually manifestations of people who are feeling under self-expressed, underheard, and under-connected with. The idea being, as um, you know, Henry David Thoreau said, um, the mass of men go through lives, you know, in quiet desperation and then go to their graves with their songs still in them. If we don't actually connect with other people, then we will never be heard for who we are. And there's a lot of pain and dis-ease that actually occurs if we don't connect with other people, other folks. You know, I was, I was listening to a, a Russell Brand interview yesterday, and he was talking about, you know, addiction and how that's oftentimes like people sort of seeking, seeking God or seeking some kind of, you know, higher connection, you know, through an external substance because they're lacking it, you know, internally or with other people in their lives. And it just makes a lot of sense to, I think, not only think about addiction, but a lot of mental health through that through that lens of people's coping behaviors, you know, looking to fill that, that inner void, whether that be through, you know, a psychiatric medication or just any, any of a number of other ways of, you know, kind of temporarily putting a bandaid on the problem. But it, it makes a lot of sense that if people don't have, you know, good relationships, friendships in their life that, um, you know, it's going to be hard to, to have good mental health if you feel like people don't really truly understand who you are. And I, I think that that's definitely something that, um, that I, I certainly value within my own life, just having those really deep, deep friendships, people who I can actually have honest, vulnerable conversations with. And I think especially amongst men that it's something that's, that's kind of rare, you know, to some mm -hmm. degree of like having those friendships where you actually talk about real stuff, deep stuff, not just kind of the surface level, you know, making, making small talk over the football game. Right. So, yeah, you speak to a few things there. Number one, you know, I think that it's true that, you know, men, um, men struggle with this perhaps a little bit more than women, especially with each other. It's hard for men to get together and have vulnerable, honest, authentic conversations. We've been trained to instead talk about, you know, women or talk about sports or talk about, you know, superficial things, money or, um, I, even harsh opinions we might have about something or the other. And we all know how to do that over a beer at the bar. You know, we all know how to do that. Um, and uh, it's not really conducive to getting down to business and connecting with another human. So that's one thing. Another thing, when speaking of addiction, you speak of uh, addiction to possibly even the psychiatric medicine. In some ways, we're all addicted to these diagnoses as well. Once we get a diagnosis, we have something that actually um, you know, uh, helps us, um, helps us with, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, it, it, it helps us get rid of our responsibility, like, you know, relinquish our responsibility for the parts of our life that we're not really re happy about. So when we learn that we have ADHD or we have bipolar disorder, we have, you know, spectrum disorder, we have narcissistic personality disorder or social phobia, these things actually serve a purpose because then we can tell the people in our lives that we're screwing up with that that wasn't really me. There's my condition kicking in again. Sort of like, you know, that wasn't me. That was the alcohol kind of thing. 
And when we can blame someone else for our issues, that somehow feels good. So when we complain something else, like an actual condition we have, that also feels good. It, it takes away our responsibility for our own behavior. So that's not true with everybody, but I think that's a real common issue here. And um, the other thing that I think is you mentioned a Band-Aid. I really wish it would be a Band-Aid, but it's not. It's much more likely to be a Band-Aid with a razor blade embedded in it. If it was simply a Band-Aid and it worked on a temporary basis, I would be much more aligned with it as a treatment. It doesn't work on a temporary basis. It actually does reliably make things worse one way or another. And therefore, it has, you know, when we put a Band-Aid with a razor blade over a cut, for a moment, the cut will appear to be covered, like everything will be fine, it won't bleed. And then shortly thereafter, ble bleeding will leak out of the Band-Aid. And that's what happens with these medications and with these treatments as well. For a short period of time, it appears that the Band-Aid covers the cut. And then the bleeding starts expanding beyond the Band-Aid. And we think that's the condition getting worse naturally. That's what we've been told. But in fact, there is a razor blade in that Band-Aid that is enhancing the condition and making it worse, advancing it in the meantime, so that in some ways or another, uh, people are locked into continuing with their diagnosis and with their medications on a perpetual basis. The idea being, again, here that, you know, when you stop the medicines, if you do so without the knowledge of how to do so, you'll get a spike of the symptoms it's marketed to treat. And that's also naturally built into these medicines. And you think it's your old condition actually coming back when, in fact, it's just a natural response to the medications and their relationship with our body that we get a spike of those symptoms. We think it's the old condition. And then we come up with the very unfortunate conclusion that, I would rather be off medicine, but I tried coming off medicine once and my condition got even worse. So now I'm back on medicine as the worst, you know, the better of two evils. Uh, this is a very unfortunate conclusion because when, you, when you're um, working with me or other coaches that understand this, you can actually walk yourself off of these medicines and get to a place where there is peace after sometimes a short period of time of discomfort, but you don't die during that time. There's no real disaster during that time. You just walk through the discomfort, and just like any other addiction, you can get on the other side of those uh, uncomfortable time frames, those un uncomfortable segments and fragments of time. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, I know obviously with in psychiatry, the, the main treatment modality being, you know, diagnosing and medications, whereas in psychology, you know, therapy, uh, you know, has is something that people have, have you know, obviously I think experience benefit from, but at the same time, a lot of people seem to be stuck in therapy or just stuck with the same issues that they're going over, over and over again in, in a therapist's office and not really, you know, getting to the root cause or, or moving past them. So what, what is your opinion on, on therapy and is right. it effective for some of the patients you've it's worked really, with? It's really a good question. You know, there are people who feel that therapy is helpful. I think in many cases, what the therapist does it, unfortunately, is kind of just agree with the patient that they're entitled to have the symptoms that they have. In some ways, they just continue to sort of perpetuate the agreement. There's an agreement there. You want to be liked by your patient. You want your patient to give you satisfactory, you know, fat, satisfactory reviews. And in order to do that, you have to sort of align with your patient that what they're experiencing is normal given their circumstances and maybe not geared towards the hardball that might be necessary to alter lifestyles and really change what's here. For instance, in the world of mindfulness or in the world of like nutrition or hydration or exercise calisthenics and movement or in actually connecting with other people in being authentic with ourselves in the creative arts, art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening, those kinds of things, we have access to multiple ways of actually rebalancing ourselves. And I think sometimes in the therapy, even those things are sort of held back because we're afraid we're going to lose the alliance of our clients. So sometimes that's what the conversation is. You become your client's sort of best friend, your, your client's confidant, and that that appears to be helpful because your client then feels like they have a confidant. They have someone who's aligned with their symptom profile. And to do the real hard work, the hardball, the actually uh, life alterations, I think there are certainly some effective people who can connect with their clients and actually assist them in making the gains that are here. But you have to remember the way the system is set up is that when those conversations break down or when the therapist feels they have nothing left, or when the conversations come to an end, 
what do they end up doing? They end up referring to the big guns, the big guns being psychiatrists and believing at some level that if this doesn't work, we're going to refer you to a psychiatrist and they're going to alter you from the ground up with these, you know, hard driving, uh, you know, toxic psychopharmacological interventions, which simply don't work as we've already um, underlined. Right. Right. So you, you touched on some of the things that potentially can actually get to the root cause of, of people's issues, such as nutrition and lifestyle exercise, all these different things that, you know, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. I, I think, you know, it, it seems as though a lot of people don't, you know, they don't necessarily want to hear that really taking care of their mental health is this, you know, kind of lifelong journey that, requires a lot of effort and, you know, really focusing in on what you put into your body and moving your body, all these things, you know, people want to, they like the idea of having that, that quick fix, having a pill. And maybe that's just something we've been indoctrinated into believing is, is, you know, how things work, even, even though, you know, you and I, I think definitely know that's absolutely not it, but what's, what's your perspective on, you know, how all of those different lifestyle factors play into people's mental health and, and why you think people have been, you know, kind of indoctrinated into thinking that that maybe isn't the case. Right. Yeah, it's a great question. And we really, you know, really start looking at it. You might even be able to relate to a little bit. You know, sometimes, like in order to get out of bed, I actually have to get out of bed. Like when I wake up in the morning in order to get out of bed, what do I have to do? I actually have to get up out of bed. Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about it. I actually have to get up and get out of bed. In order to drink water, what do I need to do? Drink the water. I need to drink water. <laughs> I need to actually pour water and drink it. In order to move my body, what do I need to do? Move your body. I need to move my body. <laughs> I need to actually do something, right? I need to move my body. In order to meditate, what do I need to do? Same kind Sit. of thing. I think you're yep. seeing the pattern here. If more, you know, in order to be mindful I'm, and meditate, this is what I have to do. In order to do any breathing exercises, what do I have to do? In order to watch what I put in my mouth, what do I have to do? I have to watch what I put into my mouth. If I don't do any of those things, then each one of those things will naturally take a toll. And we know that. But we somehow have gotten to be, like you said, indoctrinated or maybe a little bit lazy. Like, I don't want to pick up my shoes. If I don't, if I, in order to get my laundry done, what do I need to do? It's the same thing. What do I need to do? I need to actually pick up my laundry and go down to the washing machine and then uh, put it in there. Well, you know, assuming I have a washing machine, like what do I need to do? I need to actually do something. I need to take actions. Now you use the word, you use the word efforting. And I'm not sure that I would agree that effort is the word because it isn't really an effort. It's just a matter of taking action, of accomplishing these things of not just saying them and believing that because you said them, you know. Like in order to save money, what do I need to do? I need to not spend it in places where I don't have to spend it. You know, that's really what I need to do. In order to do anything, I need to do that thing. And in order to do that thing, I actually have to step up and take action. So it's in the world of action rather than thinking and feeling and knowing that all of these things take place. I hesitate to use the word effort because I think that trying and effort are maybe too big of words for what's here. All you really have to do is get up and do what it is that you say you want to do. And it's not a lot of effort. We think that the default is doing nothing. We're so used to sitting on our tails and just like watching TV or, you know, like, what do you want to do? I want to just do nothing. And what does doing nothing do? Do nothing, it means doing nothing, actually sitting on your butt doing nothing. And having the world come at us rather than realizing that we could take the bull by the horns and make a positive impact on our lives by just taking some simple actions, not necessarily trying or efforting. Mm, right. And you mentioned in terms of like the, the, you know, thinking and feeling not necessarily cutting it. And, and it's just interesting, you know, cause when it comes to, I, I feel like, you know, therapy or psychiatry, it's like that, that obviously is, is a lot of the talk about what, what people are thinking, the thoughts, managing the thoughts that are going through your head or, you know, the feelings, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me that if you aren't taking the actions, um, to actually, you know, improve your health, to maintain good health, 
then it seems like to me, at least the thoughts and feelings that, that we're going to experience are going to be a lot more negative and probably harder to deal with than if we we're optimizing our health. Right. And look, it's a difficult time. I know for me and for me personally, I'm not a, I'm not a superstar at this at all. Each night I go to bed, I realize all the many things that I didn't do that I said I should have done today. And I, there's always something. There's always, Even if it goes down to I didn't take notes or I didn't read more of that book or I didn't take out the garbage or I didn't clean up the cat litter or I didn't set, tell my wife I loved her enough or I didn't um, meditate either the second time or even the first time or I didn't. I didn't actually do uh, enough laps in the gym or I didn't actually, I didn't, what I didn't do. And that has us feeling really bad about ourselves. We're likely to take it out on ourselves, you know, blame, shame, guilt, and give ourselves a lot of shit for this stuff. But there's no reason to do that either. There's no reason to do that. There's no value in that. We can get that the human experience is so overwhelming and so confusing and so true, true for all of us that we can be compassionate with each other. We can be forgiving, accepting, and honestly um, present with each other and patient with each other because in that, what do we get? We get a resonating authenticity that is harmonic with life and allows us to do what? It allows us to connect. And what does connection do? Connection ultimately creates the, the central aspect of healing from all conditions. Got it. Got it. Well, so tell me, tell me kind of more in, in terms of like, how, how do you see people being able to, to practically build more connection or maybe establish connection if they feel like they don't have that in their current day-to-day uh, -day life? What are, what are some of the best ways that, that we can do so? Yeah. So what people want more than anything, I'm pretty positive of this, is they want authenticity. They want a genuine self. What, what's most interesting about a person is when they come out from their heart and they're actually speaking their very truth. Have you noticed that you might be across the table at times with somebody you diametrically opposed to with respect to what they think about a particular topic? Maybe one of the more recent divisive topics that are out there in the world, even if it be uh, racism or BLM or if it be climate change or if it be the virus or vaccines or whatever. You might be able to actually hear somebody speaking exactly the opposite of how you think, but being able to tolerate and even listen to them as long as they're coming away authentically from their true heart. Yeah, we're 100%. Very we're very attracted to authenticity. What we're not attracted to is agreement. If, I, if you say, you know, I hate vaccines, but I love Trump or something like that. And I say, oh, yeah, I'm the same way. I hate vaccines and I love Trump or something like that. Then and, and but you don't hear an authenticity. I'm no longer very interesting to you. What's interesting to people is authenticity and honest, genuine core values being expressed. So taking little incremental steps in the world of saying to someone something you've never said before or doing something new along the lines of where you know you're, you're stopping short or actually being someone who you wish you would be a little bit closer, just taking small steps in your world with the people who matter to you. Um, can go a long way towards activating this sense of authenticity. Your next step is not dictated by your past, no matter what you think. Your next step is not dictated by your past. Now, once your next step happens, you might link it to your past. I mean, if what you do is you decide in your next step to light a cigarette, and then you say, that's because I didn't quit. You could say that, but when you lit that cigarette, that has nothing to do with the fact that you smoke. That's a decision that you make right now to light that cigarette. And then you know you can actually fold it back into your history of saying, well, I didn't quit. That's why I'm smoking now. This is true with all of our circumstances. We can't, we don't have much to say about how the world is occurring around us, but we have a lot to say about what we say, a lot to say about what we do and what we think in the next moment. And if we really give ourselves that respect, we can make incremental changes in creating connections with other people around the world. That, that, that you know, it makes me think of um, some research coming out of John Hopkins about using psilocybin to treat smoking um, or, you know, uh, nicotine addiction. And that's, you know, where they're finding a single session, a single high dose session, being able to break someone's habit for, you know, that may have been for years. And I think to me, what that, that tells me is that, how much like what you're saying is is true in the sense of like we're 
constantly making these decisions that we could blame, you know, our habits and, you know, maybe it gets easy to, to make those same bad decisions that we've been making for a long time. But I think once people really realize that they really do have control over the decisions they're choosing to make, and it, it doesn't really help, you know, to be able to blame someone or something else, then, you know, it, it kind of puts, puts all the responsibility on you, which I think maybe, yeah, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people shy away from that, but I, I do think it's good news because then it's like we can do something to change it. Exactly. That's the good news. That's the best news. Most people sometimes think at least, you know, reflexively that that's the bad news. What do you mean? It's my problem. It is your problem. It's true. That's what I mean. It's your problem. It's your life. Your next decision is based on decisions that you're making now. And you're not going to make good decisions all the time. You're going to make bad decisions every day. Every day I make like, I don't know, tens or hundreds of mistakes. Sometimes it's hundreds, dude. I mean, sometimes I make a hundred mistakes in a day. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, wow, I am such an idiot. I am such a fool. I am so untrainable. I am so uneducable. And then I realized that probably you made the same number of mistakes today. And that and so did he and so did she. And that's just part of the human condition. We do our very best and then we go to sleep at night. And, you know, what's here is um, like when you talk about psilocybin or you talk about the psychedelic intervention here, and I can speak to this briefly. When you speak about psilocybin or speak about ketamine or speak about, you know, um, MDMA or any of the other therapies that are being considered at this point um, for for, uh, psychedelic interventions, um, psychedelic assisted therapies, et cetera, um, I think what it does is it alters the framework of what reality is made about in the first place. It doesn't really cure the addiction. It just makes addiction stupid. It just makes your next level like you realize, wow, I have access to my next decision. And now it, uh, putting a round peg in a square hole doesn't work anymore. We have a new square hole as to what reality is made of. That's what happens inside of those journeys. You get a slightly altered view of what reality is made of. And now smoking your next cigarette or taking the next, you know, the next snort of cocaine or even turning on pornography or deciding to be depressed because you know, your cat died or you're not getting along with your sister becomes something that you have more access to and you can choose what your response is to those things that are going on in your world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've heard it talked about in that, that same, that same framework. I think absolutely it, it, uh, yeah, it makes, it makes it seem pretty pointless to like, why are we trying to fill this inner void that, that probably, you know, could be, maybe as the result of not having connection with other people or, or an authentic right. connection with other people or being disconnected from our bodies or, you know, whatever, right. whatever the real issue is. And then we're distracting ourselves and, you know, thinking that, that we're doing something to kind of fill that inner void that, that really isn't exactly. the solution. Exactly. Yeah. So, so tell me a little kind of about, you know, your current work and, and kind of how it differs from, you know, your, your career in, in mm-hmm. psychiatry and just how you go about approaching the clients that you currently work with today? It's really interesting. It's a great question. And I'm in a funny place today. So you're asking it about, about the perfect time, actually, because um, it's not a clear answer. And, you know, I, I'm at a space where we, we're uh, creating a movement. We're creating a movement which may be called the Moss Institute or it might actually be called the Welcome Back to Humanity Institute. I'm not sure what it'll be called. It's going to be a, 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 crowd, a crowd-funded process, and we're looking for people to join up who are interested in altering the default mechanism of coming down the main street, like the main vein through the, inter- through the psychiatric industrial complex. I'm pretty sure that this is going to catch fire, and so are the people who have already invested in me, that we have a new thing whose time has come. The narrative is not only transformable, but today is the day, and people realize that the mental health system, among many other um, medical aspects of the medical-industrial complex, is already broken. I'm pretty sure it's going to catch fire, and this is the future that I'm likely to be dancing into. I think there'll be a, 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 you know, I'm hoping for a really groundswell of uh, helping people see different ways to do things besides the average natural default. And then teaching clinicians, like I said, of yourself, of uh, how to actually take people off medicine and take people off their diagnoses, teaching a whole coachable, speakable group 
um, uh, of people who are like-minded who are interested in, in exploring ways to help people actually heal and cure from conditions that were otherwise de deemed to be incurable and chronic and deteriorating for a lifetime. Now, that's one space I need to go. The other space I need to go is I'm a coach. I'm a one-to-one -one transformational restorative coach. And I always feel like I, I don't know how to sort of market myself differently than other coaches, although I've been coaching for 40 years and clearly have a viewpoint that's a little bit different, a little bit more rooted in some ways of thinking than any other coaches out there. I have, after all, had 40,000 patients come to me with their problems over time. And I get to say whatever I get to say. I have some, you know, some wisdom here in 65 years on earth that, you know, somehow maybe if I could attract coaching clients. Um, and there's something like that. You know, I like coaching. I like one-to-one -one coaching. I especially like group coaching. And I like mastermind facilitating. Ultimately, what I really like, though, is being a guest on podcasts. That's what I really, that's really fun for me. I like being a guest. I like being a host. I have my own podcast called The Healthy Healer. I've had another podcast in the past called Welcome to Humanity. And it's really a matter of having like these really beautiful conversations and hoping that listeners get turned on one way or another, either to alter their lives on their own or come to me and ask me how I can be of assistance. What can I do to help them or their care or their loved ones or the ones they're taken care of, you know, not fall for the um, illusion that the default system is the best way to go. So there's something like that. And then um, I have a couple courses that I've created. So I help people with that as well. I have a course called the True Voice course that helps people become podcasters by finding their true self. And I have another course called Heal, uh, Healing the Healer, which helps disenchanted healers like me who, uh, who have become misaligned with what they are asked to do in their life help them refine their lives and then go either back into the field as a as someone who's aligned with their job again or find a new job maybe they want to be a barista and that's fine like finding a new job with a a level of um fervor and a level of passion that they deserve to have in their life all of those things are things that I'm capable of and interested in doing and some of them are going a little slower than I wish you know and it's like wow is the world even ready or is the world already dead that's the other, is the world already smothered? Is there a listening out here for a future that makes sense? Or have people kind of thrown in the towel and just accepted the world for what it is? Sometimes I get really a little bit um, sad about that, that that's why people don't talk is because they've kind of decided that it's not worth it and they're not having, they don't have any plans to step up into their real self because they're not sure that there's any value to it and they're just going to ride it out until the whole thing implodes, which is about to happen if we don't speak our true voice. You can be sure that if we don't speak our honest to goodness, true selves with each other and accept conversation that's powerful with people who agree and disagree with us, that it's curtains for us. We're done. We're done. If we can't communicate, that dude, seriously, put a fork in it. It's over. Yeah, no. And I mean, I really like what you said there in terms of being able to, you know, I, th I think so, so few people seem to be able to you know, communicate to be able to hear like a, a radically different viewpoint without getting so triggered themselves. You know, I think like to be able to just have a conversation with someone and be able to completely respect their opinion, even if you don't adopt it yourself. You know, I try to at least put myself in like an open-minded position of mm -hmm. like, let me, yeah. let me try to figure out why does this person think the way they do, right. what experiences led to them you know, at least having this opinion, even if I don't agree with it, but exactly. gosh, it, it, it really, I guess, depends who you talk to. Cause I, I get what you mean. It, it can certainly feel pretty, um, uh, you know, you can feel pretty pessimistic talking to, to certain people who just aren't seeking to really understand other people and just seem to think we're all, we're all doomed. So exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's it's awesome work that, that you're doing. And I, I do think a lot of people are ready to hear it. You know, I think I there's... I so. You should come aboard. Of course, you're invited to come aboard and join the movement, whatever it's called. And uh, we'd love to have you aboard. You're, you're like-minded and it seems like you're radically interested in keeping the world moving in the right direction. So there's a formal invitation for you to come aboard as a key player. Would love to. Would love to. Well, Dr. Fred, you know, it's it's been really fun having you on the show today. Tell me a bit, uh, you know, in terms of for our listeners who 
want to connect with you or just find out more about the work that you're doing, where would you direct them to? So the best place to go to see everything that I'm up to is my what I call my 360 site. That's drfred360.com. And from there, you can get access to everything. There's a lot of nice freebies there. You can get access to podcasts that I've been on. You can get access to um, uh, to some books that I've written, the PDF versions or how to order one for yourself. Um, you can get access to the classes that I teach and psycho- you know, psychology today, articles that I've written, et cetera. And you can get my contact information. And even if you want, we arrange for a discovery call. What I invite you to do is uh, go there, hit the contact button, and then write your full name and your um, and your uh, email there, and I'll get back connected with you. Or you can hit the discovery call, and we could set up a half-an-hour call that I'm willing to give your um, listeners for free, which is a half-hour to call to see if there's a um, to see if there's a connection between me and them that we can work together, or collaborate, or you know, actually just have a formal discussion about anything, um, and um, so that's where the best place to send people. I also have a email if you just want to email me email me directly. That's at drfred at welcometohumanity.net. Drfred at welcometohumanity.net. And I can be found on social media in um, Facebook and, and LinkedIn specifically. But again, you find that through the drfred360.com. There's direct links to the social media sites that you can find me. And feel free to connect with me there. And um I'm totally interested in talking to anybody who's willing to have a conversation that moves this whole needle forward because, dude, what the hell else are we going to do? I mean, it's, it's, it's crunch time. It's, it's um, two minutes to midnight, you know, time, time to work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's clear that the, the system that's been in place, especially in psychiatry for so long, clearly is not cutting it. So exactly. You know, we definitely, we definitely need this now. So Dr. Fred, it, it was a real pleasure having you on the show today. We'll include links to, to everything that you just mentioned there in the show notes for people to go uh, go ahead and check out. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your time in, in doing this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's been an honor and you've asked great questions. Thanks for a wonderful conversation. And if there's any way I can move your advance your uh, agenda forward, let me know if there's anything you'd like me to help you uh, expose or bring out to the real world. Let's have a discussion about that. And I look forward to our ongoing conversations and our future relationship.